Well, I originally got into the hospitality industry to earn money while I was at uni. Social life, night life, good fun, meet his people. The top jobs, I would say... I would want to be a licensee. Opening a small wine bar of my own. Why? 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 Are you listening to the Why Hospitality podcast and today joined by Warren Cocktail for the first time in a long time. So, yeah, great. Uh, and our guest today is Adam Bizzetto, who um, actually uh, edits our podcast on a full-time basis, not a full-time job, but you do it um, every time we have a podcast yep. to edit. Um, so if they sound good, uh, I hope I'm Correct, they always sound good. <laughs> but um, the other, well, the main reason why I've invited, we've invited um, Adam to join us today is because we're going to focus through a few different episodes on um, individuals who are still really well connected to um, what's happening inside venues. And to give a brief overview of Adam's experience or, or current um current uh, role within the industry. Um, I guess you and I met as when you were a DJ um, playing venues that I used to work in yeah. um, and you still do that, so still quite connected with venues from that perspective. Um, I don't fully know exactly what you're doing now in relation <laughs> to Japanese whiskey, but we'll, we'll get to that because that's something that's evolved over the last little while. And there's another topic that we'll talk about, which is your work with Heaps Decent, which is something that I've always respected a lot. Um, and I think um, isn't necessarily directly linked to the hospitality industry as such, unless I'm totally mistaken there. We, it was founded by four hospitality people. Right, so okay, well, there you go. It's pretty yeah. well. But um, you'll give a lot more detail around that than I possibly could, but essentially involves you working with, um, is, is it specifically Aboriginal? Um, it's not specifically, it's more just um, disengaged youth, pretty much. Right. So we do work with a high amount of Indigenous children just because they represent a high portion of that, yeah, yeah. but I'm um, just with anyone really. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we'll cover that a little bit later on, but um, really, really amazing work that you do there. But to give uh, more detail around your background, do you want to just fill in any gaps that yeah. I have missed? Maybe start like at the very beginning of your professional career and bring us up to speed as to where you are now. Yep, um, so I've been a musician since I was four years old. I played in various bands over the years and then... What do you play? Uh, a lot of things. Computers. <laughs> computers. <laughs> you play the laptop. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, that's what I say to people now. I say I play a laptop and they give me a funny look. I'm like, that's, that's just the reality of it. But um, so I've been a music teacher, guitar, piano, or things like that. And then when I was at university... It kind of started where you mentioned I started DJing just yeah. for fun. Uh, and I started DJing in a lot of venues. That was probably 13 years ago now, 12, 13 years ago. It's hard to remember. It was quite a long time ago. So just for fun, I started DJing uh, around Sydney. And I'm still doing that now, getting a little bit back, back into a little bit of live music, which is, I guess, probably something we'll talk about later. And um. During that time, DJing, I've also had uh, musical acts, made music, performed festivals all around the country. And then I guess the last thing that's come out of that was a keen interest in whiskey. Yeah. Just being around uh, a lot of nightclubs and bars and taking more interest outside of the music. Yeah. So now I'm a produce, licensed producer wholesaler as right. well. So, and that's specifically Japanese whiskey, is that right? Mm, well, it is for me because I guess my knowledge of, of alcohol mm. is, is fairly limited. Yeah. And it started with Japanese whiskey because I was spending a fair bit of time in Japan. Right. And that's about the time when I probably started to drink whiskey. Right. It was right, it was right when the boom happened. What was that, about like three or four years ago when it really yeah. started to get, maybe a bit longer now, when it really started to get popular. Yeah. And so what does that look like for you now? Are you just, are you importing and distributing? So now it looks like I do wholesale one brand in Australia, but I wholesale very small amounts of it. Right. Um, it's the smallest distillery in Japan. It's actually, they actually produce whiskey in Japan, which is a trend maybe we'll talk about later. And also, but before that, it started as um, finding bottles that people couldn't find or that were just ridiculously expensive in Australia. Right. So because I was going to Japan 
at least once a year, a little bit more, because um, my father-in-law is Japanese, right. so <laughs> he has a bit of influence on that. Um, I knew people that lived there, and Japan, being accessible but also being really closed off to foreigners, it's quite hard to find certain things. So I just, after spending a lot of time there, I started to meet some people and find out some things. and. You know, I could bring bottles back to Australia that would cost twice as much here. So yeah, that's right. kind of where it started. So is that like bringing a couple back at a time? Is that what you're talking about? Or is, the, is that legally an issue? No? At, at times, I've spent three hours in the post office in Japan bottling up individual, boxing up individual bottles right. and sending them to different places in Australia. A lot to myself. I'd also... While I was there, I'd have to buy off people in person sometimes, or yeah, I would bring home three, but I'd normally save that to the duty free anyway. Yeah. So um, it's just a lot of time spent sending bottles, just individual <laughs> bottles back to Australia. Yeah, right. Like a lot. I think not that I was meant to do this back then, but I think my first two weeks of deciding that I was interested in this, I had. I had 50 bottles back to Australia in two weeks. Yeah, right. Is it, that's obviously just a, ma- a demand? Just a demand, yeah. So it was, um, yeah, that's that's how I still do it now. I just bring in small amounts. And yeah. And so what's the, the brand that you, can you share that? Is yes. It? I usually didn't want to do an ad straight away. <laughs> I do it. Uh, the brand that I do is called 963. It's possibly, I think it's the fourth oldest whiskey producer in Japan. I'm pretty sure it's the fourth oldest, but it's part of a, a bigger sake company. So it's been a small sidearm of their sake production since, well, they've been making sake since like the 1700s, but they started making whiskey in the 40s when there was demand, well, there was local demand, I think, in the 30s and 40s around the war times. Yeah. Just for army men to have something to drink. So they started making it then. Right. A lot of in Suntory and Nicker and, and those companies, I think, kind of started as well. And they've just recently, well, not recently, about like the last 10 years, have had some age stock where they could start actually putting out proper good product because mm. I think a lot of Japanese whiskey before the 80s was only a third actual whiskey and two-thirds blending alcohol, I'm not too sure what, what, what they call it, Yeah. so it's, I guess it's only in recent times where I think anyone should be drinking any kind of Japanese whiskey, and that's when these guys, 963, um, because they've been around for a while, they have, they've had, they have a 21 year, like they had age stock, and they started focusing on doing a proper yeah, quality right. brand instead of um, a brand for soldiers. <laughs> yeah, cool. So are you going to crack that open or what? Yep. <laughs> I know from editing this podcast that that normally happens a bit later on, but sure. Yeah, no, and it's exploited as well. I mean, where, where, can, where can we buy this? At the moment, it's only stopped at the Junkai, which is a small shop in Rosebury, yeah, and P&V, which yeah. is the wine store in Newtown. Right. So it's funny, P&V um, aren't particularly, they're, they're, I guess, a Australian wine-focused store. Mm. But... Um, I put a couple of Brazilian bottles in there, would you like to pull yourself, um, just because I, I know them. I, and there's also for sale currently, there's two bottles at Backstreet. All right. So we might as well stay on whiskey because we're here, but uh, I know Warren really likes whiskey as a general rule. I, it's something I've tried to get into. But I just can't. I just I don't know why. Maybe I just haven't mentioned the right things. But I've tried some some quite quite good single malts or yep. rated, you know, just through um, their presence and their uh, brands as being really good single malts. But I just cannot get into it. And I, it's funny because I come across that a lot. And to me, it just it just I like I see a lot of people with a, with a passion for alcohol. I guess of, mm. like I, I have a few like a few friends that are winemakers and things like that. And it's funny I, I, I see that a lot. Mm. People just like oh I just I just don't drink whiskey. I, I don't really know what the point of entry is. Like what is what is it that makes someone yeah love whiskey? I've probably got caught in a little bit by well drawn in sorry a little bit because they caught drawn in a little bit by the story yeah um, because I was in Japan a lot and I was traveling to the distilleries and seeing it and I think. Part, and just 
I guess, a passion for Japanese instruments, because obviously I play music, so the majority of mm. synthesizers in the world come from Japan. Japan make really great guitars, like the best Fender guitars in the world. No, I wouldn't say the best, but great ones are from Japan. So I think I got maybe a, a little bit caught up in that yeah. as well. So did you have to train yourself to like whiskey, or did you immediately like it? Did I. You? I just spent too much time at the supper club in Melbourne. <laughs> right. <laughs> but did you enjoy your first sip of whiskey or not? Uh, yeah, I did. Like, I had a really good one. Right. I think, yeah, I did. It's when I first, when I then tried something like a Johnny Walker Red without having Coke for the first time, that's when I realised actually there's a difference between a, a, yeah. a terrible drink and yeah. an amazing drink. It's not very nice to Johnny Walker Red. <laughs> um, did you? I I was just I think working as a DJ for so long. Mm. I was just always around alcohol, and I didn't really know much about it because I was yeah. never behind the bar. I, I I didn't know what cocktails were. I didn't even know like what different wines tasted like. So I just became really curious, and I think trying whiskey was so interesting. Yeah, that, because I remember just actually after after you left when I when I was with uh, when Stu was the GM of Cargo, we we actually you know it wasn't a great time for for DJing and nightlife. And I remember we just used to chat about alcohol, right, or, or wine and, and spirits. And he used to tell me about how they were made and where they came from. And I think so. I don't think I, I loved the first whiskey I tried, but I, I was very curious, and there was a lot. To learn that just made me interested and just made me want to try more. Yeah, right. And did you? Uh, well, what, how would you define the difference between Japanese whiskey and, um, say, a Scotch whiskey? And why has it risen to prominence so quickly? I, I get asked this question, yeah, a fair bit. I've even right. gone to a few bars in Sydney and 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 just talked to them a little bit. Um, Japanese. First Japanese whiskey, yes. Yeah, <laughs> We're just trying it. It's speechless. Well, this one's bought at a cast strength, so this is fifty-nine percent. Oh, right. Um, Good. Which that's, an, that's another whole talk. Um, I'll, I'll try and make this answer really quick because it can drag out a little bit. Japanese whiskey only, always, only ever wanted to be Scotch. It just wanted to replicate Scotch so so badly. You talk about I talk about the love affair of that Japanese people have with other cultures. Like, mm-hmm. you want to get the best American hamburger in the world, you go to Japan. You want to get, <laughs> yeah. like, amazing French food, you go to Japan. They have more Michelin-style restaurants. They probably have more Italian Michelin-style restaurants than they have in Italy. Maybe not, but but you see my, my point. So that's, I guess, they just wanted to be Scotch so badly. Right. Um, and the, they were trained in Scotland. The first Nikka distillery was, you walk through it, it's in the top of... Japan, like really far up north, and it feels like, well, I haven't been to Scotland, but this is what I can imagine Scotland feels like. Um, and you walk through them, and, and you just go, wow, they just wanted to be Scotch. But I think due to, like, if you've drunk a lot of Japanese wine, most of it is very different. It, it tastes like, like almost like, um, like grape lollies. Yeah. And I think that the Japanese people, well, to, to appeal to Japanese people, they had to alter the taste a little bit. And they, I think what they ended up making was, like, it was a lighter spirit, I guess, a more floral spirit. Mm. Um, it was less peaty than a lot of scotches, it was smoky, um, just to appeal somewhat to Japanese tastes. Right. Um, it's, it's funny, even when you drink wine there, you like, they even make the labels look like French labels, but the reality is it doesn't taste like, like French wine. It tastes like something very, very very different. Um, mm. There also the other thing I think too which was quite prominent when Japanese whiskey became something was the use of Mizunara which is Japanese oak. So for a period they couldn't get uh, their barrels from overseas so they had to use uh, Japanese oak and it was, it was a difficult one to use, it leaks a lot, um, it's hard to shape and it goes to right. auction now but it, it, I think it imparts like a creamy pepper taste on the whiskey. Mm. Um, and I think because that was used, like that's in Yamazaki talk, the, there'll be whiskey from a Mizunara barrel. Right. Um, you just, I don't know if you just saw the Yamazaki 18 Mizunara cast was sold out at $1,300 for an 18 year, instantly went to three and a half thousand on resale. Really? Wow. Like, 
Dan Murphy's had it sold out in the morning, and then I think the minimum you could get it was about three and a half thousand dollars, and that was a Mizunara cask. Shivers just did a Mizunara cask. Right. Um, who else is in one? And another Scotch distillery just did one. So I think that also plays a part in. Mm. So it's like you know, it's Japanese people attention to detail and passion for one thing and only one thing for their life. It it was Japanese tastes, flavors, preferences, and. And I'm going to say this could be controversial down to the Mizunara cask. Right. And is the volume to which they're producing anywhere near comparable to mm. so the supply and demand yeah. has to come into play there probably? And, like age you can't get, if you want to buy, so you've got Max Santori and Nico, which are the two probably, well, definitely the two biggest distilleries. They're big. Yeah. I don't know how they compare to Johnny Walker because I don't really know that much about Scotch. But um, they're, they're big companies, like, and Nika currently don't have an age name of whiskey available. So they don't have an 80, they don't have a 10, they don't have a 12. Year. So you're talking about the second biggest distillery in Japan not being able to offer aged whiskey because they've run out. Wow. So this is definitely a, a supply and demand issue. Like, definitely. If this huge brand that wins probably more awards. For, this, for its size and its age than any company in the world, probably more than, more than Santori, don't actually have a current age statement whiskey available. And they haven't had one available since 2012, <laughs> and they won't have one. Well, people are guessing they won't have one till, till 2020. Really? So even this one we're tasting right now, I, I ordered some more the other day, and they're like, sorry, we won't have any eight year until next year. How, how much does that go for? This retails in Australia currently for a fair bit. This is retails for $190. Wow. But that's due to, I guess, my volume. Yeah. And what I get from them as a yeah. price. And also, uh, it's a high alcohol content, so the tax is a little bit more. And it's the smallest distillery in Japan. Mm. So, yeah, they produce the least amount of whiskey out of any distillery at the moment. It's got, I mean, this is going to sound a bit wanky, but and I don't know what you're saying, whiskey man, but in, in like wine land, you'd say that's got amazing length. Does. I was mm. noticing that. It's really, right. really good. Yeah, it's um, it's not that overly complex, but it does have that that what I like that subtle honey on the tongue. Yeah, and I, I, honey. Yeah, mm, or that I subtle sweetness on the tongue when you first taste it. And that's hard because the alcohol is so overpowering. Mm. It is sixty percent, fifty nine percent. So then it's. I taste after that. I, I know a lot of people that taste the car strength. I I think it's something to find flavours within that much alcohol is quite hard. Yeah, I'm struggling. Yeah. Uh, well, we should do the obligatory cheers. So thanks for bringing cheers, in. Thank you for having me. I've heard these cheers so many times. Yeah. <laughs> Why? So we had uh, Michael Rodriguez on last week. Do you know? So what, was it, what was it about? Because I remember from. The MD of Time Out Australia, yes, yeah, and yeah. he's pretty vocal when it comes to live entertainment, and yeah. um, he's lobbying the state government on, um, I guess, the impacts that have taken place, which is seeing a lot of live music venues closed down, a lot of venues that are, you know, to traditionally been providing DJs or live bands, no longer being able to trade because of the lockout laws and, and yeah. implications on licenses and stuff. You've obviously been involved in the music scene for a while. What's your perspective there? I mean, what are you seeing in terms of the impacts of those changes? And it could just be, you know, venues like Cargo that you mentioned already, or you would have played venues like Oxford Art Factory, you would have played yep. um, pretty much every venue in Sydney, I would imagine, at some point. <laughs> so Almost. What at, you know, we're here to talk about your perspective at the actual coalface. So what have you seen happen over the last few years since those laws have come into place? I guess I'll start with, with DJing. Obviously, and everyone's had this conversation so many times, I'm sure people don't want to talk too much about lockouts again. But when that came in, I reckon I lost about, and that's when I was probably still about, majority of my income came from DJing. I, I think I lost about 30 to 40% of my work. Really? Pretty quickly. Um, I get, it just took, uh, as a, back then as a working DJ, and I say working DJ because most of my income back then came from DJing, um, you just lost one whole slot of the night. So you, you could possibly fit in three if you had a busy night, and that just took one whole slot mm. out. The other thing I noticed, which was, which was 
which was bizarre, which I didn't expect at first, was, okay, sure, things will still be busy till three because everyone will want to come in and, and, and hang around because they know they've only got to three. That wasn't, that didn't happen at all. Places just emptied out earlier. Right. Um, I remember my first few gigs in King's Cross afterwards, I think, I remember mainly World Bar because I was doing, which has always been a busy venue. It's never not been. Um, I, even now, now I know it's doing okay, but even, but back then anyway, I remember two o'clock, it's when it started to trail off. And that really surprised me at first because I thought, well, you can still stay out. Why, why are you going home? And I guess back then you had to put it down to lockouts. Yeah. I, I don't know if like shifting, like, uh, like, you know, I also, I also thought that younger people just weren't going out as much as well. But, yeah. but back then it was so obvious straight away that it was just this must be because of lockouts. Or it must, must be changing the attitude of people where they're just like, if I go out, it's too difficult and I couldn't be bothered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so fast forward, what, three years? Has it been no, three that's... years? Yeah, till, till now, uh, from a, as DJing goes, I, I don't work as much as a DJ anymore, but I still do. I still do Maryvale venues, I still do Solitaire venues. Yeah. I'm actually about to go back to Cargo, but I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, I, I still see a surprising amount of work for me, yeah. which I didn't think would exist by now. Due to how things are currently, as, as far as um, you know, foot traffic on the streets at night, people going into clubs and bars. Now I work more with bars than clubs. Yeah. But I'm, I'm still surprised that I guess I have as much work. Now, the work I do now is definitely, well, when I do go to work now, it is, it is sometimes it's tough because you're there and it's just not, there's just not many people there. Right. And it's like, Everyone has just come, like bartenders and managers have almost just, I, I don't know how it's coming down from the top, but but they've almost, I guess, just accepted that that's how things are. So that's, that's, that's the trend at the moment. Yeah. I, I, I remember like years ago when people would stress out if it wasn't busy. And this was yeah. like back in cargo, early cargo days, right? If, if it wasn't busy, everyone was on edge. Everyone was edge. Now it just feels like it's not busy and people are just like, well, this is just what, what it is now. Is, and this, again, just bear in mind the reason we're talking is that disconnect that, you know, we speak to CEOs all the time on this podcast. Mm. Um, there is always going to be a disconnect because they're not going to be out on the streets every Friday and Saturday night seeing what you typically see. Are there businesses that are counteracting those issues better than others? Um, are there, there has to be venues out there that are performing really well from a trade perspective late night and is that, well, there doesn't have to be, are there? And if so, what are they doing to, are they doing something different? Is it from, from, venues? From a DJ perspective, I don't see, like I see a few things, like Tokyo Sing Song in New Towns, I think an example of a venue that's sold yes, yeah. that's a venue, yeah, that's, trying to do something different from, from a DJ perspective. Now, I was I was playing there with a, a local group, a local record label called Matari. They had quite a good following. They put on small festivals. They're, they're definitely someone that's very actively involved in DJ culture in Sydney. Even even they struggled to bring in people on a, people on a weekly basis. Right. Um, and, of course, I don't think it's due to anything that they were doing. I... I, I like the bar is busy, the DJ part or the music focused part is really struggling. Like you have some venues like like uh, like Frida's, yeah, um, which do focus very heavily on music, and they 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 are busy and they they get that niche in. But I guess you know outside of the super niche venues, like I think Frida's, what else? Like Tokyo Sing Song is one because people do go there mm. and make it sound worse and, and they're still doing specific things. But, and even like uh, like more music focused pubs like the Lord Gladstone and Botany View. Yeah. It's very hit and miss. Right. Sometimes I have great evenings when they put on a particular act that has a really like niche following yeah. and then the next weekend will be empty. Yeah, right. Um, what, what, why is it? Because I mean, three years ago, you sort of, if you could 
pinpoint a couple of reasons why that was or why that started happening, but why is that happening now, do you think? I think it used to be more about the venue. Like you would go to a venue because because either your, your group of friends hung out there or you knew they always put on like good DJs or had good music. Whereas, and this is a huge assumption I'm about to make, but when venues started getting bigger and lost a bit of focus, not lost focus, but needed to like try and gear things towards just keeping people involved, they mm. lost the people that made them big in the first place. Right. Like I, I feel like I noticed that a lot at, at Cargo over the years. Like I remember when you were working there and I would come down there and play, and I remember it used to be, to a certain extent, like two songs for us, one song for them, but as long as the two songs for us were, were, were lively and energetic and, you know, they weren't obviously songs that no one liked, that would work. Yeah. And the place would be busy. And then, you know, kind of like things shifted a little bit to like, oh, how do we keep people in? And then the lockouts happened. And then, you know, places, I think, needed just to – they. It was, it was, I guess, it was business. Or people were scared and people just needed to keep people in. And venues, I guess, lost. Like, I remember the parties in Akikawa were great. Like, it was packed the whole night. And mm. and we were there DJing, uh, having fun. And I'm not, not saying I don't have fun now DJing, but back then we, we, we were. But then it just became... Commercialised. Yeah, I'm not saying Akikawa specifically. And... And venues lost what they had. Yeah. And now a venue like, for example, Frida's, I think, uh, they have a thing. Yeah. And that's and that's why they get and a shrinking. I, I feel like a shrinking crowd, maybe not, but I feel like they've secured a shrinking crowd because people go to the venue. So there's no one specific type of music that's drawing people in in general at the moment. That's like the go-to. Um. No, like, uh, music-wise, like, you ask a, a DJ, I guess, who's been DJing along to me to play 90s hip-hop, I'm probably going to get really upset about it because I feel like I've had to play that same genre of music for the last 13 years. Bloody good, though. Hey, <laughs> I'm not going to you know I've, I've got no argument for that at all. Um, it, is, it is definitely good. So, music-wise, I, I don't think so. I think, like, just sometimes people want something that's just beyond what they know, no matter what it is. Yeah. Sure, you go to Oxford Arts and you might see a lot of new EDM acts, yeah. like Australian kind of EDM acts, but that just definitely doesn't dominate the lineup. And you can go to the side room there and see an indie band on, on, at the same time. Crowds will look different, but they'll be a similar age. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't put it down to a genre. I just put, I guess, put it down more to a, sounds pretty cheesy, but a passion. Yeah, right. Like, venues with a passion. And the other thing is, I guess, I've noticed food venues seem to be, but maybe that's just because of the age I am and mm. we're a culture that's used to, or, you know, we're used to going out, whereas I'm not sure if how much of the younger generation are, talking maybe, because I work with a lot of like 18 to 21 year olds um, through the charity, uh, we just go out more and maybe we're of the age where we go to restaurants. Yeah, right. But in saying like, this is leading now towards the, the live music thing, I've been approached to do live music for the first time in my life in the last 10 years. I've been approached like twice in the last month, once by the Lansdowne, yeah. And once by uh, Cargo Bar, World Group that will be handling the entertainment for Cargo Bar. Yeah, right. So it, there is, there, there, there might be something there. I feel like I'm a bit stupid. I'm not, you know, current or something, but <laughs> what is the difference between DJing and live music in your, in terms of what you do? Because that to me is the same thing, but obviously it's not. Oh, I, look, I never want to dis. Credit. That is stupid. What <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. That's actually a really, a really nice question, though, because look, as, a, as a DJ, you press buttons, right? Everyone, pretty much you're a glorified selector, right? Yeah. You, you, you select songs. There's an art to everything that you can do, and I think some people select songs better than other people, but I guess live means actually playing an instrument. Right. So, like, there'll be a keyboard, or there'll be a guitar, or there'll be something like that. But you'll have your, your, your computer there as well to sort of... 
Uh, yeah, you can, or you can just have your duos, right. um, you know, your, your guitarist and your singer and stuff right. like that. Okay, cool. So do you think you're going to see more live music coming back into non-traditional live music venues? Is that kind of what you're thinking? I'm thinking the ones that are holding on to it are really going to hold on to it. Right. So, like I said, for instance, the Lansdowne yeah. is where I've been talking about doing something there. Um, they're the ones that have it now are really going to like hold yeah. it because I guess now they're a niche, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of goes back to what I was talking about before. And the other, other project I was talking about was trying to bring, I guess, interest back um, as opposed to just having a, 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 a DJ that plays the same songs as everyone else does. What's the general sentiment around the staff that you deal with at the moment in venues? Um, whether they be bartenders or managers, like you mentioned Stu, you used to have conversations with him. Yeah. Um, do you, do you have, is there anything consistent in relation to the staff that you deal with across different venues? If anything, it's probably a bit, a bit negative because I remember when I was DJing back, I was probably as a good reference because I, I thought like that was almost like, at one stage, that was a big thing happening in Sydney. Yeah. Um, I remember back then, I actually did talk to staff and everyone was kind of involved in the party a little yeah. bit. Um, there was staff that would come up to you, oh, I love that song, you know, there was, that just doesn't really seem to happen anymore. Maybe that's just because the businesses aren't doing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's gotten to such a, I guess, a, a kind of a low point in Sydney that the, you do get some passionate managers that are coming through now and going, we, we want to do a little bit more. Yeah. Um, though it, it, and obviously the two things I talked about, the Lansdowne and Cargo Bar thing of other kind of entertainment, but I think they do realize the uphill battle. Yeah. Like, it, and and they probably have to need to be a little bit more careful. It's like I remember, like maybe ten years ago, we could you could do something crazy because places were full. Yeah. Now now they're not, and it's it's a bit of a gamble. And mm. you well, always thought it was a gamble spending a couple of thousand dollars on a live act. Like yeah. Now it would be a massive gamble. You know, if you just. You, you could you would always have enough people turn up to justify it, but you mm. turn a good night into a great night as opposed to needing to turn an average night into a good night. That's the difference, okay? Your your perspective is really interesting because I mean this whole podcast series was put together to shine a spotlight on kind of successful people within the hospitality industry to to, to demonstrate that there are amazing crews that can be forged within within that space. Do you think that that's the sentiment in venue? Like, do you think that there's people, whether that be DJs or whether that be bar staff or, or whatever, do you, do you think that there is a, a feeling that careers, careers are being forged? I, I think music less so than, say, restaurants and food. I, I think oh, definitely careers are being forged there right now. Like that, like that just seems almost insane, the growth of that, that side of it. In, in music, like, it, it's funny, I don't see anyone coming through as a kind of, say, working musician, DJ, like how I've come through. Yeah. I don't see that happening below me. Mm. But I do see, I guess, there's still as much, like, if you're talking about live music venues, there's still definitely the star and the artist. But as far as the working musician goes, um, I... I I, I don't see that happening near as much. Yeah, right. Every, every, like, musicians that I play with or I'm DJing before or I'm DJing after, they're normally, like, I'm 36, so they're normally closer to my age. Such a shame. Again, that's something I haven't thought about for a long time, but I remember back 10 years ago, there were so many different options. There were DJs everywhere, like, you'd have DJs mm. coming at your left, right, and centre. They would also typically be people like you who are interested in creating music and producing and um, or going up to the bloody piano room and playing one of their open nights or um, whatever, whatever night of the week they had live music going on up there. It's just so drastically different now. I, I find a separation too between 
the young artist and the old artist quite different as well. With the young artist, it's a little bit more about all or nothing. You, know, you either are flute yeah. or Basenji, or I'm trying to think of local artists that do quite well. Um, you are that, or, or, you're, or you're not that. Whereas you don't have more people like me, like who DJs a little bit, uh, does a bit of uh, audio engineering on the side, uh, does do whiskey sales, uh, maybe probably gonna start playing a cover band. Like you don't find the multi-skill. I can't help but think about the um, parallels between that and chefs. It's, it's yeah. like everyone looks at Flume and created out. Well, I think his first album at a home studio. Um, yeah, I think it was just from his house. Yeah, yeah, which was a massive success. It's kind of like you could draw a pretty clear line yeah. between that and people look at MasterChef and don't want to have to go through the rigors of building a career, but they just want to go straight yeah. to the top. There's a lot of young musicians who I've seen to take try to take that approach. Sit at home in a home studio, think they're going to make the next big album that goes goes massive and be rich. Yeah, I guess, I guess they do it or they don't. Yeah, they don't end up like me, I guess, where you're just doing a whole bunch of things to, mm. to keep, I guess, your career in hospitality and music. It's all about the intention, right? Like you're doing it because you're super passionate about it, not to get rich, even though you probably yeah. like to be. Sorry? Because oh, <laughs> we all would like to be. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to be doing in 10 years? Are you doing all these things? What's, are you going to be mm. doing one? That is a, a really good question. I, I think I will continue to be how I am. Yeah. And just a much wealthier version potentially. Uh, hopefully. I, I can see myself probably like I, I think that I thought I would have stopped DJing when I was thirty years old. But it the job was good and it and it paid and and it was easy. Well I shouldn't say easy. It was enjoyable work a lot of the time. Um so I have no idea. <laughs> I assume I'm still probably doing a bit of this, a bit of that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Why? So tell us about Heaps Decent. Like what, what, what do you do? So Heaps Decent is a not-for-profit music charity. or well, not-for-profit. Yeah. Um, we, I think the easiest way to explain what we do is uh, uh, weekly we go to different centres, different parts of the state, and uh, make music and art with, with anyone, really. So like uh, a month with Heaps Decent will look like like last month, I travelled to Ingonia, which is it's far. It's <laughs> five hours north of Dubbo, so you drive straight up to the to the border with Queensland. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and we worked. There was a, a school camp for kids from within the area. Within the area is within a two-hour radius. Yeah, like it's it's nowhere. And we just make music with the kids for for three days. Uh, every Monday, I go to Youth of the Street School, which is a school in Redfern, which is a school for uh, kids who can't go to school because they're mostly homeless. So they can just turn up to the school and just go, I want to go to school. And they're like, that's the only barrier they have to get past. So I do that on Monday. I go to Redfern Community Centre and then a free drop-in and then I go to three juvenile justice centres um, where I just go to the jails and write songs, rap songs with the kids. We normally, we travel all around the state. We normally do like we've done, I've seen a lot of parts of music. I've seen a lot of pubs. A lot of pubs. A lot of regional yeah. pubs. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot. Maybe that's what I should be talking about, regional pubs. I've done a lot of them. Um, so we've travelled all around New South Wales, like Burke, Griffith, Riverina area, Broken Hill, Canyon, Menini, which is all out there. Um, uh, Walgate, where else have we gone? Newcastle, we go to Canberra. Just doing either schools or, or dropping centres or PCYCs or... Anywhere, I guess we could. Anywhere, someone will let us in to yeah. do music. Yeah. How did? Well, what do you see as a result of that work? What What is that? How do you, I guess I'm sure there are amazing success stories. But what do you What do you see when you actually turn up and you work with one of the say a, a, an inmates potentially? Is it about going making music with them to help them? I see. There's a different future for them, or no? I I kind of see it as and this. Is, I'm, I'm, this is probably not the company stance. We don't really have that. But I see it as it's important time for us to be spending time with them because yeah. I, I, I don't know these kids. Like, I've barely even, I've rarely been to these suburbs. So I think that's important because if we get to know each other, we'll probably realize that we're more similar than we are different. Yeah. And 
also to, to show them that just because they're not good at this or just because they're not good at that might be good at something else. Right. I, I rarely go into it like going, oh, we're going we're gonna to find you a new career. Because that, like, that could happen. And I remember we have hired a couple of guys over the years to do a couple of workshops. Right. Um, but I see it more as, yeah, especially when we travel regional too, to, to spend a lot of time, like there's this one town in, in it's two hours out of Broken Hill that we've been going to for six years. Um, quarterly for six years. So that's a lot of trips. And and every time you go, you get used to spending time with them. They get spend, used to spending time with you. And then all, like, all of a sudden, you after three years, you do say hello on the street. You know? And then after four years, they'll sit down and talk with you. And then after five years, you've met their dad. And, and I think that's pretty important, I guess. Mm. And we just, music's just the thing we use that everyone can do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Is it just kids? No, but it's youth focused. Right. So um, normally our funding will be to to reach out to youth, mm. like to go to schools and um like we've been to Villawood Detention Center. So we've worked with adults. Yeah. But the funding is normally to to work with youth. Right. And how how can you get more funding? How can people get involved in this? More, uh, most of our funding comes from Australia Council, so it comes from the government, but we also do uh, fundraising events like we had an art auction, which I think we raised like 35000 from, and then yeah. we collect from events. I, I think the most, like, the, the, the sad reality is, is, I guess, money talks. Um, unfortunately, it costs a lot of money to fly regional. Um, it costs a lot of money to send three people to a jail for two hours. Like, you think that's, you know, that's three people's salaries for days. But... That's, you know, you can't expect that. I just, just people taking interest because I think the main thing is is just seeing what the other side is like. Because something's scary if you don't know about it. Mm. But when you start to know about it and know more about it, it's it becomes a lot more normal. And if, just to use, just, you know, Indigenous strains as an example, you know, a lot of people don't spend much time with Indigenous strains. Like, they just, they just don't. Yeah. So just follow what we do and, and, and make up your own opinions on people that you haven't met before. I think it's a bit like each season is name. I don't think I actually said it. We'll put the link in the um, show notes so mm. people can have a look because I obviously follow you on, uh, well, we're connected on Facebook and stuff and the photos that you put up do give a very different uh, impression of what you would like. If someone wants to hear that you go to the Volcania or yeah. Villawood Detention Centre, there's going to be a very clear image in their mind as to what that's like and there would be a lot of people and my when you say Villawood, my immediate response is that would be scary. Like it would be, you know, a, a, a potentially a tough situation to be in. Um, but when you actually see the photos, you're right, you're playing basketball with them a lot. <laughs> yeah, I am. Making music and stuff. So it's, it's a really different um, reality, I think, to what you, most people would assume. Why, why was it started? Or who started it? This is, this is actually ties in a lot with DJing. Oh, so, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so this yeah. was started by um, uh, Nina Las Vegas, Triple J, yeah. and Andrew Levins. Like, you might not know Andrew Levins, but he's, uh, he actually now works in, well, he had the restaurant that did that was in Good God, and he actually writes for Good Food now. Right. But uh, we all met, um, we're all DJs, so we all met actually at World Bar over 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, so there was a joke, I think it was during the lockouts, like I think one of the police said nothing good happens after 2 p.m. <laughs> was it, sorry? Right. Yeah. So I, I always, I, back then I used to make the joke that like our charity met after 2 a.m. Yeah, right. Like that's, it's just passionate people, and passionate people were passionate about DJing. Mm. And then we're passionate about they were passionate about this, so they started this. Um, so that's that's kind of was pretty interesting. That's how it started because, yeah, music, I guess. Yeah, right. And also, too, the interesting about us, Diplo kind of played a part in it, starting as well. He wanted to um, work with some indigenous uh, stupid. Explain artists. who Diplo is for people. Sorry, Diplo is an artist, music producer. Um, he's part of Major Laser. He's the main part of Major Laser. He's in his own right. He's had big songs. He travels the world as a DJ. He's produced Beyonce. Uh, what else? What else has Diplo done? I feel like he's had his. He's American. He's had his finger in every music pie for the last mm. ten years. He's played every major festival in Australia. So how did he get involved in an Australian charity focused on 
indigenous youth primarily. Yeah, at the time when he was here, um, Andrew Levins and Nina were actually touring him. Right. And they were doing his his uh, his his gigs around the country, and he makes music and he works with a lot of different people. So yeah, he said. He, and then at the time, um, Nina Las Vegas, he started. He said her mother was the principal of a uh, juvenile justice school in Wagga Wagga. So unfortunately, the connection to Indigenous kids was through a jail, but they took him down there and he made music with them for three days. And since that, we've taken, um, God, MIA, lots of uh, A-Track, Kanye, Kanye West's DJ. Um, this is getting a little more niche now, like Busy P, which is part of the whole Daft Punk crew. Um, we've taken guys like that into GVs. Really? Yeah, it's been pretty funny when um, A-Track was doing it. They, he told him, that, you know, he told the students he was kind of a student. They're like, do you have, like, um, do you have Jay-Z's number? And he's like, yeah. And like, do you have, like, Tiger's number? Like, that R&B artist. He's like, yeah, give him to us. And now, like, the guy and A-Track was like, no, no phones allowed in the gym. My phone is on the outside. I can't remember my phone. It's all, it's all on the outside. And I remember we took uh, a, a big Sydney artist in, well, he was, like, then Benny, a Triple J artist. And we, were, we played the students' his song, and one of the girls was like, this song is... And was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is crap, what is this crap? And I'm like, oh, okay. But yeah, there's been some pretty funny uh, things over the last few years, I'll tell you that. Why? Well, we might as well jump into the standard three questions and um, go from there. So you must have heard these a few times. Um, yeah, so yeah. I even, I even like, I even um, checked my like, I even like, I thought about this for a bit. Yeah, you have like the best answers out of anybody. Oh. Um, but uh, some more? Uh, I'll have a, a nip. Well, here we are. Tough time. <laughs> um, so, who do you admire most? And we specifically haven't said in the industry because it could be in the world of music, but it could be anywhere. I guess my work now is very close to being, it's involved in the industry, right? I guess music and, and booze. Mm. Um, who I actually admire the most at the moment, and they're more, I guess, groups, like the group, the Mary's group, so, and then there's the Swill House group who do mm. Cuba, let's just do one at a time. Um, I, I really like the Mary's group because I am 36, my, my wife is still at age, my wife used to work as an editor for the Urban List, which is uh, like a timeout of sorts, so we used to spend a lot of time uh, and I like now that there's still places where I can go and and be educated about wine, listen to music that's not the same thing that I always hear everywhere because I, I DJ, I've heard the same stuff a lot. Um, and like get a great hamburger. I like, I love, I love Hubert for example because you can eat there after 10 o'clock. Mm. You know, in a city that seems to shut down at, at 10 o'clock, you can still go there and eat. And again, sorry, going back to the Marys guys, like people that champion, like I would love to champion Australian whiskey. I just, I just focus on Japanese. But people who, I guess, like champion homegrown products. So, like, yeah, so PNB is the, the, I mentioned it before, it's the bottle shop that's run by the guys, Mary and Mike Betty, the wine critic. Um, you know, you go in there and they'll tell you about a million good Australian wines. And also to um, Maurice Tazzini, so the people who do Dolphin, uh, I, 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 because now I, I uh, wholesale whiskey, I've met a lot more people in wine, so I'm And I love that you can go to a bar in Surrey Hills, which you might think, you know, is just a normal bar, and the Dolphin has been like a good bar, but it's just been, you know, like just kind of a local spot. But like, I go in, in there with people from, or people who I'm meeting now through selling whiskey. I'm like, no, no, we'll go to the Dolphin because their wine list is crazy. Yeah. You know, they'll have really weird and out there stuff, and they'll put it on the menu. And you might go $16 is a lot for a glass of wine, but you can also go to another venue and have a rubbish rose for 12 Yeah, yeah. So they'll take a bit of a a risk, maybe not a risk. I don't know. Maybe they know because they're the type of venue that can that can sell upsell things like that, like hip, cool things. It goes back to passion, really. I mean, if you look yeah. at them, um, their focus is if you go across all their businesses, their focus seems to be on quality. 
and about actually delivering the best as opposed to the cheapest or um, or, or structuring cost or product around anything other than actually trying to put the best thing on the menu. You know, mm. um, I, I totally agree with, with. I mean, you look at Dolphin. The cocktails on the list are, are great. The food is exceptional. Wine list is amazing. They fitted the video out really well. The staff are always really well trained. They do tend to do it pretty well across their business. And it's not overly exclusive either. Like, no, if, you, if you just went to the footy and you want to have a beer, go to the Dolphin and have a beer. Sit in mm-hmm. the front bit. Like, you, you can do that too. Like, the exclusivity kind of annoys me a little bit. Mm. But even, even at Mary's, it's like a rock and roll pub. You know what I mean? But I sit there with my wife and have a bowl of wine. Like, I love these, these kinds of places where you can kind of cover a few bases, but are still passionate, I guess. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, well thought out. Good. Oh, no, I did. Good. I made notes. <laughs> They're not long. <laughs> what's, what's your, uh, your, your number one prediction for where the industry's going? Sure. I guess that's a little bit... Oh, oh. DJing-wise... Um, Look, I, I think that it's going to move, continue to move on, like, moving on. I think, like, as often venues that I DJ at, that I kind of think to myself, they probably, like, they probably could get away with not having a DJ, but they still put it in there. And even if the DJ is maybe just selecting the right music, they, they still add something. And people, like, big groups that you might think are mainly money-focused are still putting us in there. So, like, I... I like a, a good example is I was playing at um, Quiddy Pavilion and uh, we were told, even told that we didn't even have to mix songs together, but we had to set the vibe. Like vibe was just crucial. That was like, if you have the right song to play next, don't worry if it's a different speed than the last one, just, just play the right song. So I think that kind of thing is still valued. And I think that's going to, you know, there's still going to be places for uh, not the the headline DJ, but the DJ that can just make the vibe a little bit better. Mm. Just just play that one song that, that, that three people are going to turn around and go, oh, I really like this song. And they'll come up to you and they go, you know, I, that's that's not a 90s pop song. <laughs> 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 yeah, like I have used to have me be Kuchi Pavine all the time. People, you pay pop pops on it. People go, oh my God, like I have this song in age. This is a great song, like young and old people. So I think... That's got a secure future for a while. Yeah. Live music can only get better because I guess it's almost at its worst. Uh, so hope, hopefully my, my prediction is it's, it's probably going to move slowly. Um, but it, 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 I don't think it's going to get worse for a while. But I, I can't see that much moving. Japanese whiskey and whiskey bars... They never seem to go wrong, do they? Like I go down, I go down the back soon and say hi, and just have a drink, and by five o'clock it's full. Mm. I, I guess specifically how Japanese whiskey will will sell in Australia at the moment. I feel like it's probably at the worst possible position it can be at because you're just so overhyped and overpriced. And I don't like saying that because I sell the product. Um, so I think it's going, take, it's going to get a bit of a backlash. I'm already noticing a bit of a backlash where people are like, why am I paying three times for something that I've never even heard of before? Mm. Um, so I think that's going to, and now there's a lot of fake Japanese whiskeys where they just get scotch and they just take it to Japan, they put it in a barrel, they put some stupid symbol in front of it, you know, like a really big Japanese symbol, and then oh, normally not that good, and people are starting to notice that. Right. This is in small whiskey circles that I, I mean. So I think... I think Japanese whiskey is going to have a bit of a, a maybe a tough time over the next few years, um, and maybe once they can get costs down, we'll come out of it. But that that could take a while. I think people are a bit sick of paying these exorbitant prices to right. to drink whiskey. Does Australia do whiskey? Oh, that's a good question. Does Australia do whiskey? Like. We are high, we do drink a lot per capita of whiskey. Like, I think it's the French is first, random, I know. And then a couple of other European countries. But I think Australia was, I could be wrong, so sorry if anyone hears I'm wrong, but I think Australia is almost top five. Do you mean like, I mean, produce, produce. Yeah, oh, sorry, no, produce right. whiskey. We have 90 distilleries registered in Australia. Any good? Anyone? Great ones. Yeah, right. We do whiskey, I'd have to say New World Whiskey. 
we do it really well. Only problem is the price. Who's the best in the Australian market if you would put, put one out there? Look, you can't really go past Sullivan's Cove, can you? Because they have won the most awards. They've kind of been around for a, a fair while. There's been a few, like, I don't want to say hidden misses, but they've the where to put it, but I think will come really good, which is Lark and Nant. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I am probably the most into at the moment because I like their, their range. They're not just about uh, high carb, like high ABV, like car strength, high alcohol volumes, which is which is what Sullivan's go do a lot, is um, lime burners in Western Australia because they're starting to get a range of whiskies and their prices aren't crazy high. To buy Sullivan's Cove, it's minimum 190 at, at retail. Right. I think the double, double cast that just came out. Um, so... You've seen Jim take off here. Yeah. I, 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 I would guess that half those producers are just waiting for age stock to be whiskey. Right. Like, like Archie Rose. They've started whiskey. They just started, had their first age spirit come out. They called it an age spirit, so it's be like three years of whiskey, right? So I'm assuming it's a two year age spirit or something like that. Um, they had that come out, I think, a couple of weeks ago. They had a rye, which can be a whiskey as well, mm-hmm. but you know, I guess I consider mold. A, a whiskey, not mm. really right. Um, so yes, we do do whiskey, and I think after maybe Japan, as we would, you know, you'd go like what Scotland. There's a couple. There's a French one. There's an Italian one. They're not really big. There's obviously bourbon in America. There's Japan, and then I would. I think we would be like oh Irish. So for Irish, but I think we would be just under that as far as producers go. Thailand. <laughs> Taiwan. Oh, Taiwan. <laughs> they only have the one distillery. Yeah. So we, we have a lot more producers than what. Well, they might have more, but they have one that I, that I know of. So we do, I think we do do whiskey and we're going to do whiskey well. I just don't know how the price is going to come down. Yeah, okay. Mm. This actually it burns your nose. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. What, uh, Adam, is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? So I don't know if it was given to me as advice, but. I'm going to, uh, refer- uh, Andrew Levins once told me, the person who started Heaps Decent, uh, I met as a DJ many, many, many years ago. Uh, we know each other through DJing. Um, and now, yeah, he went to Australia at his restaurant and now does food writing and a lot of podcasting about food. Um, he, I remember once when he started in food, and I take this on when I, when I do whiskeys, he just said, uh, you can do I, I can do anything. You can do anything you want. Like, if you just want to do it. Like, I just do anything I want now because I can do it. This is a DJ that started a restaurant that became a food writer with no prior experience at, at, at all. Mm. So, I, I just, yeah, now there's nothing, like, who would have thought I'd be, I have a liquor license. Like, I literally started this two years ago and, you know, this has already been in some of the best and I, my prior knowledge of alcohol was DJing. <laughs> Take that however you want. Um, so, yeah, I remember he told me, he's like, you can do anything. Like, you can just do it. And that's, that's pretty simple advice, isn't it? It's you awesome you can do yeah. anything. And that was part of the drive to get to actually start to do whiskey properly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Nice. You can cut this in any way you like, but can you, can you make a good living... Out of that? Like could you, can you see a future in that being like your primary source of income? Um, I feel like you'd have to have at least three or four brands and, and wholesaling a company that's as small as this one. Um, like we're talking in production is probably a quarter of the next smallest distillery that's sold wholesale here, which is White Oak. Right. So with only one brand, probably not. But... Um, I, I personally, I can't and never see my income as mixed. It will always be mixed. Yes, yeah. I think to make a living out of this, though, you, you probably have to take on a portfolio of, like, if I was to make this my living, I would probably go, okay, Japanese gym. Yeah. And I'd try and secure three Japanese gyms. Yeah. And maybe a couple of Japanese natural wines, because that's not totally covered in Australia. It's mostly covered, but it's still... And I would just work that Japanese angle, because it's actually quite, I think, a, a good... The country as a product is a good product as well. Mm. Yeah, great. Yeah. Awesome. 
Thank well, you. thanks for your time. Really appreciate Pleasure. it. Um, and we'll stop it there and you can just start editing it straight away seeing as you're here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mate. Really appreciate it's it. All right. Thanks for bringing the whiskers. It's the last bottle ever. This is left. Until next year. Thanks for listening to White Hospitality. We hope you got something out of today's show. For any questions or comments, you can find our contact details in the show notes. And please feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website, future-u.com.au. Massive thanks to Adam Bazzetto for his production skills. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.